At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. A listener production. Happy Halloween, witches. Welcome back to another episode of Just the Gist. It is still just the Jake for the time being, but hopefully not too much longer. I hope you've all got something really fun planned this weekend to celebrate Halloween, ideally something, anything that involves dressing up in some kind of costume. If COVID hadn't shat all over this year, you'd be seeing photos this weekend of Rosie as Meryl Streep and me as Goldie Horn and Caleb as Bruce Willis in Death Becomes Her. We're just keeping that plan on ice till next year and we're assuming, we're hoping, we're praying to share that 2022 won't turn out to be an even worse sequel to 2020 than 2021 has proven to be. Now, question... Do you like scary movies? Because this week we're serving the story of a sinister piece of spooky cinema with a big healthy nod to 90s nostalgia by taking you back to our episode from last October about The Blair Witch Project, a film which absolutely deserves its reputation as the best example of viral marketing for a movie of all time. It completely altered the way Hollywood thought about movie making and about marketing stunts, and the film itself still has a massive cult following 22 years later because its team of creators managed to construct such a compelling mythology about the Blair Witch. I read one person who genuinely believes it's as compelling as the mythology that George Lucas created with Star Wars. And over the last two decades, there have been Blair Witch video games, Blair Witch comic books, Blair Witch parodies, and of course, more than one Blair Witch inspired porno, one of which was called The Bear Wench Project. And the Blair Witch mythology is still very much alive. This year they opened up a new Blair Witch-themed escape room in Las Vegas, and there's a new fairly major project in the works right now to make a sort of sequel that's going to be bringing the big witch energy into the 2020s that I really want to tell you about. But first, before we get into all the witchiness, I want to start with a quick reco. I'm a big, big fan of Daniel Sloss. He's a Scottish comedian and without a doubt, he's one of the best comics in the world. You maybe know him from his Netflix specials. I've been lucky enough to see him live a few times and can't recommend that highly enough. I've even had the chance to meet him at the premiere for Drag Race Down Under a few months ago, an event to which he wore a bright yellow hoodie because he didn't have any understanding of the event he was attending. He is an excellent guy. He's absolutely brilliant. Rosie also loves him. I turned her on to Daniel 
a couple of years ago when I told her she absolutely needed to watch his most infamous Netflix special called Jigsaw. And as a direct outcome of her watching that special, Rosie became one of the 128,000 plus people around the world who ended the shitty relationship she was in at the time. And Daniel just released a new book last week called Everyone You Hate Is Going To Die, and it is sensational. Yesterday, I listened to the entire audiobook, which Daniel narrates himself, and I give it an enthusiastic five out of five stars for the content and for the performance and for the fact that my inner monologue now has a Scottish accent, thanks to him. I'm quite enjoying that. It's kind of part manifesto, part biography, all served up in a sort of stand-up comedy storytelling kind of style. And it's really clever, super funny, very insightful, and I just loved it. So I'm strongly recommending that. And also, if you haven't already, you must check out his Netflix specials called Jigsaw and dark. And when you're on there, whatever you do, do not watch Dave Chappelle's Turd Fest special Closer. I watched that the day it came out, I think, knowing nothing about it. And it's a dumpster fire. It is mean. It's not funny. It's just a feces festival. So steer well clear of that. Now, some very good news. Rosie's coming home from the spa this week. And Caleb's got some very special treats planned for her. Boo is 100% going to give her the cold shoulder for at least a week because she left him for a month. And as soon as she's ready, she'll be back here on the pod. And I can barely wait to start serving up some new stories with her for all of you as soon as she's feeling up to it. And this week, just before we jump in to revisit the original episode about the marketing for the Blair Witch Project and its impact and its legacy, I want to share a few examples of some other marketing stunts in the history of cinema that utterly failed. Starting with an absolute calamity from 1987 called Million Dollar Mystery. This was a total clunker of a movie. The premise of it was sort of similar to It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, if you've ever seen that. Basically, a bunch of strangers racing around the country trying to find some hidden treasure, having all sorts of slapstick encounters along the way. And in this movie, the treasure they're looking for in this case is a bunch of overtly branded Glad brand heavy-duty garbage bags each hidden in a different location and each filled with a million dollars cash. Obviously, the movie was sponsored by GLAAD. The GLAAD logo was very prominent on the movie poster. There were lots of shots that zoomed in on the branded garbage bags throughout the movie. And the marketing stunt was telling the people of America that if they came to see the movie in a cinema and they bought a packet of Glad bags, they could win one of the bags filled with a million dollars cash. So a ticket to see the movie was like a lottery ticket, but with way better odds of winning than a regular Powerball draw. 
and the way the competition worked was the movie had a bit of a cliffhanger ending because one of the bags of cash had still not been found by the end. And if you watched it during the credits, one of the actors broke the fourth wall and explained to the audience that if they could put together all the clues that had been dropped throughout the movie and match that up with clues that were hidden inside specially marked packs of glad bags, they'd be able to figure out where the final glad brand bag of cash had been hidden and they could win it. So they just had to fill out the form that came with their movie ticket and submit it with their answer. They were obviously really confident that if they gave people the chance to win a million dollars in 1987, that was going to be very compelling and draw huge crowds to come and see the movie as well as push sales for glad bags. But they were so wrong. After spending $10 million on making the movie at the box office, they took a total of $989,000. They didn't even make enough money to cover the cost of the $1 million prize they still legally had to give to the competition winner, which ended up being a 14-year-old girl. She, just like the dozens of others who saw the movie, guessed correctly that the final bag was hidden in the nose of the Statue of Liberty. Apparently it was super obvious. And they put all those correct answers into a raffle drawer. They pulled out this girl's name and she became a teenage millionaire while several people at the movie studio lost their jobs over the debacle. Then there's the marketing stunt that backfired so badly the film's official publicity agency dropped them as a client and the director had to issue a public apology. This stunt was for a 2013 movie called A Belfast Story, which is about the troubles in Ireland, which was a very dark, very scary time in history. And the director of A Belfast Story went rogue and sent out PR packs he designed to hundreds of film reviewers and people in the media, hoping it'd get them all excited for the movie. And each pack contained a balaclava along with the essential ingredients to make a nail bomb, which is one of the lethal guerrilla warfare makeshift weapons the IRA were using in their terrorist attacks, and a roll of gaffer tape, just a selection of the ingredients you'd need if you wanted to commit a terrorist attack of your own, along with a small poster for the movie. And obviously everyone who received one of these packs was horrified. Most of the film critics who got one said they wouldn't even watch the film, much less review it. And the ones who did end up seeing it absolutely condemned it as a piece of shite. And the PR agency who was promoting the film officially using the normal press releases and preview screenings was like, um, this was not us. We weren't involved in this stunt. And the director had to come forward and admit he thought he was being really clever by orchestrating this maneuver through another agency. He tried to defend himself and explain his reasons for sending out those tasteless packs, but no one cared. And he never directed another film 
again. And can you imagine how livid you would be if you were one of the actors in that movie or one of the investors and the director tanked the movie completely just at the moment it was released? You'd be furious. So that was a big shitstorm. And the last one I'll quickly mention is the two-year-long hoax Joaquin Phoenix played on the world to promote his film, I'm Still Here. In 2008, the acclaimed actor, revered movie star Joaquin Phoenix announced he was quitting acting so that he could focus on becoming a rapper. And no one really believed him until a video came out of him sort of slur rapping on stage and then falling off it. And then from there, it looked like he just went completely off the rails. He grew a scraggly beard, put on heaps of weight, always seemed like a wasted zombie in interviews. And then it was announced that Casey Affleck was going to make a documentary about Joaquin's transition from actor to rapper, going from the top of one field to the bottom of another and starting over. And that's exactly what they did over the course of two years. Joaquin committed to this new career choice. He tried to get a record deal with P. Diddy, lived a wild lifestyle, loads of drugs, sex workers, and it was all captured on tape by Casey Affleck. And a lot of it was done in public and known to the public as well. And then just when the movie I'm Still Here came out, Casey Affleck admitted that the documentary was in fact a mockumentary and the whole thing had basically been a long con. Joaquin wasn't quitting acting after all. This was all just for the project. And The film was intended to make a statement about reality TV, specifically how naive it is to believe that any reality TV isn't in fact scripted, because of course it mostly is. And all I can say about this is I hope they had fun and made some friends along the way in this process that took two years because the movie didn't make any money. It was only released in three countries. It made less than $100,000 in its first month and hardly anyone has ever seen it because it got such bad reviews. So at the very least, I hope they have some fond memories after going through all of that. And now to wash away that taste of failure, let's enjoy hearing Miss Rosanna Waterland as she walks us through the iconic, genre-defining Blair Witch movie and the marketing stunts that made it so successful and so memorable. And let's all also revel in her reenactment of the most emblematic scene from that entire film. You'll know it when you hear it. Um, And then stick around till the end. On the other side of the original episode, I'll tell you about the plans for the next installment in the Blair Witch franchise. Or if you want, of course, you can skip straight to it. Just check out the show notes. We'll have the time code in there if you want to skip the original episode. Um, I'll give you a teaser. The next installment is not going to be another movie. And you could even get involved in writing the story if you happen to listen to this episode in time. I'll see you on the other side. Enjoy. 
Oh my God. Okay. So I'm going this week and I'm doing one that I've been wanting to do for a while, but there's actually so much more on it than you would think. And so much more to it than I even realized. So it ended up taking me longer to get put together than what I thought, but I am doing the, what is called probably one of the greatest and first viral marketing campaigns of all time, the Blair Witch Project. (laughs) Great. Excellent. I haven't heard anything about this for so long, but you're right. It was a huge phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah, it was. But when you say you haven't heard anything about it, what do you mean? Like the movie or the marketing behind the movie or what? I haven't. It just hasn't come up in conversation for a really long time, but it was a really big sensation when we were in high school, I think probably like year eight or nine or something. And the big debate was, is it real or is it Is it real? Yeah. Did you think it was real? I didn't fall for that. No. I did. You did? Oh, okay. Oh, Um, um, yeah. I was hook, line and sinker. I can remember that the three stars of the movie, I don't know if they actually were involved in the production of the movie as well, but that they ended up on the cover of Rolling Stone or something like that Mm -hmm. around the time that it came out. So it seemed pretty obvious to me that obviously they'd survived this encounter. Well, it actually, Um, they weren't on the cover of Rolling Stone until about six months after it had come out. So there was a very, which maybe because we were in Australia and we were behind, but they purposely kept them out of the spotlight for almost six months. So people thought they were dead or missing. Okay. And obviously we didn't have the internet back then as well. All right. So I definitely don't know the whole story. Yes, there's a whole lot goes into it, but um, we'll get to it because it's really funny and I was a massive nerd in year nine. So, wait, was I year nine? 1999, so I was year eight, which means Uh you were year nine? Yep. Yeah, and I was full into it in a big way. It's embarrassing, so. (laughs) Hooray! Alrighty, Jacob, Jacob William Stanley, here we go. I'm going to give you Mm -hmm. just the gist of... The Blair Witch Project. Dun, dun, or just dun, the I wish I knew what the theme music nerd. was. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, it didn't have theme music. That was one of the things that made it so such an eerie film. It had no soundtrack. Um, ah. it, it blew people's minds. Well, because it was all meant to be found footage. So mm. it's not like people footage people film on their own video camera it has a soundtrack. Like I said, I can't remember having fallen for believing that it was absolutely real, but I definitely was terrified at the end of that movie in a way that mm. I had never actually experienced from a horror movie previously. Yes. And my friends and Tell I, thanks to it. the movie Scream, were obsessed with horror films in a really big yeah. way. We'd seen so many of them, but I had never felt a sense of fear before that... I ended up experiencing when I actually snuck into the Mm. movies to see Blair Witch Project. Well, it was incredibly well made in that the film itself was really cleverly done and really well made Mm. and really eerie with things that were so different at the time. So, for example, there was no music or soundtrack. Even the thing that um, blew people's minds was when it cut to credits, the credits were completely silent. So when the film ended, you just had sort of these weird sounds of people in the cinema going, oh, my God, I just shut my pants. That was so... Like, people just sitting there looking at... Like, all you could hear was people kind of, like, whispering amongst each other. And um, 
also the fact that the actors in the film filmed all the footage themselves. So there wasn't, mm. like, most found footage films, like, that went on to happen, like, you know, the Paranormal Activity movies and Cloverfield and all that stuff, the footage is filmed by someone else. But in this, all the footage is filmed by these actors. So a lot of people actually threw up during the film because the camera work was so shaky because it was just three actors filming on camcorders so it was really well made and different but then it was also marketed in such a genius way that I think even if people thought maybe the film itself was fictional those people even thought that it was still based on a real legend like the Blair Witch is a real legend this film is fake and like I mean what people didn't realize is the entire thing from the history of the Blair Witch to all of it is completely conceptualized just by these guys from a film school like all of it is fake (laughs) but I think we should explain because probably for some of our younger I know we're millennials but we are we do seem to be at the um the We're pointy cusses. end of being millennials. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> people younger than us may not even really understand the concept of the internet not being around and not really having phones. And there were, I think mobiles were sort of a thing around this time, but never filming on them. I mean, the most fancy thing you had on your phone was you could play Snake and like pick a different beepy ringtone. Oh, yeah. 1999, the Nokia 5110 yeah, reigned supreme. Yeah, 5110. Yeah. It had um, an antenna. Yes. Yeah, so, like, you couldn't... This wasn't a time where, you know, it, uh, these kids, these well, they were college students, could have filmed stuff on their phone. Like, this was all old-school camcorders and stuff. But um, I guess I'll just get into explaining it. So, for those of you who have no idea about it, here is just the gist. <laughs> Released in 1999. So, I was uh, in year eight. You were in year nine. We were wee little mm-hmm. bebés. Mm-hmm. The Blair Witch Project was a film that told the story of three film students who go missing while making a documentary about the legend of the Blair Witch. Mm-hmm. And the movie's posters were freaking brilliant. They had a, um, just a close-up of this girl's face who looked terrified, kind of like she was filming herself, as they call it today, a selfie. But we didn't have mm-hmm. that language back then. So it just looked like she had a camera on herself and her face looked terrified And the tagline on the poster said, in October of 1994, three student filmmakers disappeared in the woods near Burkittsville, Maryland, while shooting a documentary. A year later, their footage was found, dot, dot, dot. So (laughs) everyone sort of was thinking, this is a movie with actual found footage of three college students who went missing. And I remember like hearing that it was coming out because there was a lot of sort of talk about it and rumours about it and whispers about it, which, you know, in hindsight is because they marketed it that way. They, they, the reason we were talking about it is because they had a very genius marketing campaign that ensured everybody mm. was talking about it. But, um, yeah. you know, we just started hearing that this movie was coming out that was showing the last real days before these people disappeared and like... We didn't really have the internet. We, I mean, we had the internet at my public high school. We had one computer in the library that had the internet and you could book it for 15-minute slots for a dollar and it was so slow. Like, I remember you would book it for all of lunch, so that was, like, two or three 15-minute slots, so you'd pay three bucks 
And by the end of lunchtime, I would only be halfway through downloading a picture of the Backstreet Boys to print out. Like that's yeah. how slow <laughs> yeah. the internet was. It was so <laughs> shit. So we had it, but it was very new. And websites and search engines, like I think Google was either not existing yet or very new. So people didn't really know how to use it. Like you would search something and it would have like three search results as opposed to 10 million. Um, So when people started hearing about the Blair Witch and they went online to search it, they found a bunch of stuff like there was news stories about how these students had gone missing and there was like, you know, a website that told you about the legend of the Blair Witch and a little documentary came out called The Curse of the Blair Witch. It was a half an hour documentary on TV and it went into the history of the legend of this witch and it also talked about how these three college students went missing. I think I do remember that. that. Yeah, and they were like, oh, my God, this movie's coming out, all about this. And there was also a book called The Blair Witch, A Dossier, which I shoplifted from Grace Brothers. Shut up. Because it was called Grace Brothers then. You didn't. I was with my friend Shelley and we really badly wanted it because we were obsessed with this story and we really badly wanted it. So I, it's like pretty much one of the only things I've ever stolen. I shat my pants and then I ran all the way to Penrith Plaza Station and like did not feel safe until I got on a train back up to the Blue Mountains. But this book (gasps) was filled, it was called a dossier and it was filled with like interviews with private investigators who were like trying to find the college students and it was filled with like old historical documents of like you know back in the town when the Blair Witch was supposedly around and it was filled with like um, pages from one of the college students diaries and it, it seemed like a real book about a like a real true crime book about a real mm. disappearance so I was so in it. I was like, this thing is real. I can't wait for this to come out. I've read this book. I'm in it. I'm there. It was when I did see it. I didn't sneak in. We just went during the day. So I must have been old enough or looked old enough. So we went to Penrith Plaza, me and my friend, and we watched it and it was sold out because everyone was obsessed. And it was, like you said, one of the scariest things I'd ever seen in my entire life. Like I was petrified Mm -hmm. I cannot explain how disturbing yet not really graphic the ending is not graphic it's not um cheesy but it is just so eerie and disturbing and the movie ended and it was such genius not having any sound during the credits because it just meant Mm -hmm. everyone was just sitting in the cinema like did I actually just watch a real person get like what did I just watch yeah, yeah. It was, and um, I think a huge part of that terror was because you sort of went into the movie not knowing if it was real or not or thinking, like me, that it was real. For sure. And then, like, the filming style is, I mean, it's so incredibly immersive because it's mostly yeah. from the first-person perspective and then the fact that there are no special effects and there's no audio engineering mm-hmm. to make anything in any way unrealistic. It just plunges yeah. you directly into everything that's yeah. happening. So it all feels so deeply connected to all of your senses. Um, yeah. And it's and so almost for like the kids, an, an illusion. Yeah, for the kids listening, it is like you're watching a movie of three people have filmed a whole bunch of stuff on their phones and then those people go missing and then 
a year later their phones are found and they find all this weird footage on their phones. Like that's kind mm. of the premise, but it was video cameras. So I'm going to walk you through now like the film, what happens in the yes. film, okay? Mm-hmm. And then we'll talk about the marketing and all of that afterwards. Mm-hmm. So the film, The Blair Witch Project, is made up of footage that has been found on the cameras of film students Heather Donahue, Josh Leonard and Mike Williams. As students at film school, they had heard about this urban legend about something called the Blair Witch, who was apparently uh, a witch that murdered a bunch of kids a long time ago and haunted the town ever since. And the first part of the film is uh, Heather, Josh and Mike interviewing local people from the town of Burkittsville about the legend. All the people they interview seem pretty scared to be talking about it and all pretty much believe that it's real. Everyone in the town believes that it's real. They all think that the Blair Witch is something or someone evil that has cursed their town for hundreds of years. And in interviewing these people, Heather, Josh and Mike find out that in 1785, Burkittsville was then called the Township of Blair and several children accuse a woman called Ellie Kedward of luring them into her house to draw blood from them to make potions. So the kids are fine, but Ellie Kedward is found guilty of witchcraft and she's banished to the woods in the middle of winter, which where they are, winter is like minus 100 degrees. So that is being banished to the woods in winter is a death sentence. She never pre- like returns, so she's presumed dead. But not long after this, all the children who accused her of witchcraft vanish along with several other children in the town. And the townspeople assume they've been cursed by a witch and vow never to mention Ellie Kedward's name again, even changing the the name of the town from Blair to Burkittsville to try and move on from the whole thing. The kids are never found and they think that she was a witch who got them all. Mm-hmm. But even though they changed the name of the town and they vowed to never talk about her weird, terrifying stuff to do with kids dying or going missing keeps happening in the town over the years. So in 1825, so that's about 50 years later, 11 witnesses testify to seeing a woman's hand reach up out of the river and grab a small girl and pull her down underwater. And the girl is never seen again. But a week later, bundles of sticks start washing up on the shore covered in like this oily substance and they say that the oily substance is what happens it's the leftovers of like when a witch has done a spell it's like evil gooey stuff oh like the residue that the ghosts leave in ghostbusters Mm, yes exactly it's Uh like presence of the paranormal Ectoplasm. Um, Is that it? Ectoplasm. I I, I don't know. Whatever. (laughs) In, yes, nerd. Okay, nerd. (laughs) In in 1886, um, so what's that, maths? About another 50 years later? No, 40 Mm. years? Oh, who cares? An eight-year-old girl (laughs) goes missing (laughs) and a search party goes into the woods looking for her. She eventually wanders back into town on her own, but the search party doesn't, and they are found a week later in the woods, their arms and legs tied together and all of them disemboweled, and they've been put on display with piles of rocks and sticks around them in that kind of ritualistic-looking way that it looks like it's some kind of satanic or evil ritual. Mm. Um, And there's a big gap after this, so that was 1886, 
And people assume the curse is lifted, but then mm. between 1940 and 1941, seven children are abducted from Burkittsville. And in May 1941, this old hermit guy who lives in town called Rustin Parr walks into the local supermarket and says, I'm finally finished. And they're like, yo, finished what, Rustin, you weirdo? So police go to his house in the woods and they go to his basement and they find the bodies of all seven children in there. They had each been ritualistically killed and disemboweled. There's those stone things and stick things around them like those people from years ago. He told the police that an old witch had told him to do it and that he killed them one by one. He would make one child face the wall in the corner of the basement and listen while he killed another. And they weren't allowed to turn around. They just had to stand in the corner facing the wall, waiting their turn. So Rustin Parr is convicted and hanged. And ever since then, the legend of the Blair Witch had terrified the town. And Rustin Parr's house apparently um, was still sitting abandoned in the woods. People just didn't want to go near it. And so after interviewing all these locals and hearing all of this backstory, Heather, Josh and Mike decide to venture into the woods to find some of these locations where these things happened, to find maybe Rustin Parr's house. And at this point, they pretty much think they're making a documentary about hysteria and about a bunch of townspeople who believe a nonsense legend. They think that probably what happened was Rustin Parr was just a crazy murderer who did some horrible things and the rest is just silliness. Mm -hmm. So they hike in, they park their car on the edge of the woods and they hike into the woods and they hike to a place called Coffin Rock where the bodies of um, all those search party men were allegedly found back in the 1800s. Everything seems normal. They camp for the night. The next day they find an old cemetery with heaps of those weird rock piles and stick, like stick figure things again. And um, it all looks like quite ritualistic, like it's been placed there, mm -hmm. not like it's just natural nature stuff. Yeah. That night um, they hear like lots of twigs snapping around their tent, like someone's walking around their tent and that freaks them out. So the next day they decide to bail. They're like, let's, this is freaky, let's go. But they can't find where they parked their car on the edge of the woods. They're kind of lost. And it gets dark, so they say, we'll camp for one more night. We'll find the car tomorrow. They hear all that scary noise again that night. And that night when they come out of their tent, they find that they've been surrounded by the same freaky rock piles that surrounded the cemetery. And they were like, F this, we are going to bounce. And I cannot express to you, dear listeners, how freaky it is watching this movie because they're just filming all of this they're petrified and you're petrified watching it thinking it's actually happening. It's remarkable how much of this is flooding back to me now yeah, as right? you're describing so it. So scary. Um, yeah. it's, I hope that if anyone who's listening who hasn't watched it, this convinces you to watch it because it actually is just, it, it is the most, I, I think the experience of watching it probably wouldn't be as profound today because you know that it's all fake. But at the time it was just so up in the air about whether it was real and what it was. It just, it was impossible not to be freaked out. Mm. Yeah, so they wake up and these rocks are around their tents and they are just like, uh, no, nah, we are Audi. And so they are desperately trying to get back to the car that day, but then they realise that their map is lost and then they start seeing all these stick figures hanging in the, from the trees, like those little bundles of stick made to look like a little they stick figure doll. 
Yeah. They're terrifying. They still can't find the car that day. That night they're in their tent again. They hear children laughing outside their tent. They hear foots, like really sort of intense sounding footsteps, like people are running really quickly towards their tent. Their tent starts shaking from the outside, like someone's trying to get into it. So they all run screaming into the woods and hide until morning, which is such a great part of the film because you're just seeing this camera shaking while they're running into the woods thinking stuff is following them. And the crazy thing is you never actually see any, you don't see any figures, you you just hear this stuff. Which is what makes it so much more threatening. Yeah. Yes. So they hide out in the woods that night. They get back to their tent in the morning and all their stuff has been rifled through. And Josh's stuff is covered in that weird paranormal slime, but only Josh's Mm. stuff. That Mm -hmm. afternoon, Josh disappears. That night, Mike and Heather are in their tent and they can hear him screaming. They can hear Josh's screams coming from the darkness of the woods. Sounds like he's being tortured, but they're too scared to go and find him. So they stay in their tent. I remember this. Yes. It's, yes, so scary. So freaky. Yeah. The next morning, um, Heather finds a bundle of sticks and inside is some of Josh's hair, Josh's teeth, and a piece of his tongue. So she freaks the F out, but she doesn't tell Mike because she doesn't want to upset him. And that night in her tent, she records the very famous scene, probably the most famous scene from the whole film. (laughs) I'm so, I'm so, I'm so scared right now. Scared to close my eyes. I'm scared to open them. I just want to say sorry to Josh's mom and to Mike's mom and to my mom. I'm so scared. Wait, I've got to go down. She's like this. I'm so scared. I'm so scared. Right now. So that's like the most famous scene from the whole film. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was so beautifully done. Give the girl an Emmy and Oscar and a Tony. Wow. Thank you. Except you have to imagine it with a lot. The scene was famous because there was a huge amount of snot pouring out of her nose. Like she is snot crying. She's petrified. Yeah. And so she's filming that footage in the tent about how scared she is. And then they hear Josh screams coming from the woods again. And this time they decide we've got to try and help him. So her and Mike run into the woods towards his screams and they find an abandoned house. I mean, presumably Rustin Parr's house, but we don't know. It's just this very spooky abandoned house in the middle of the woods. They can hear Josh screaming inside. So they go in. And there's all sorts of those stick figures hanging everywhere and there's um, children's handprints all over the walls. And you've got to imagine that this is, the house is dark and the footage you're seeing is just from their cameras and the light from their cameras. So it's just pitch black and then you'll see like, you know, bits of the walls and bits that you, it's like you're seeing it through their eyes. It's petrifying. Mm. You feel like you're in the house. Very much, yes. They each have a camera. Mike heads into the basement. He gets attacked by something and his camera drops to the floor. 
and the film ends with footage from Mike's dropped camera. So the camera's on the floor and you're seeing out of his camera and all you can see in the shot is Mike facing the wall of the basement in the corner while you hear Heather screaming. Oh my God, I'm actually about to start crying. I just petrified myself. You have taken me straight back to Erin Affair Hoyt's 1999 and I have goosebumps all over my body. Penrith Plaza Hoyt's for me, my friend. Oh, my God. (laughs) So it ends with the exact, you know, it just, it, oh. And then it just cuts to black and there's, you know, 500 terrified teenagers sitting in the room wishing that they maybe hadn't seen the movie after all (laughs) because it was so scary. So I believed it was true and a lot of people did. If you went on IMDb, like I said, the the actors or or the they were listed on IMDb as filmmakers, Heather, Josh and Mike were listed as um, missing presumed dead. After seeing the film, seriously, the Blair Witch Project is all anyone talked about for weeks. And it was like people were speculating about certain scenes and people were saying, well, I heard this and I went on this internet chat room and I read this and people like were going on the Blair Witch website. I mean, I for once stopped trying to download Backstreet Boys photos and was going on BlairWitch.com <laughs> to like try, which looked like. A tr- it didn't look like a website for a movie. It looked like a website about a true, like about a missing uh, kids, like missing college students. And um, mm. people were obsessed. It was petrifying. But of course, it was all fake. And I will now explain to you how they did it. Question. I, yeah. Well, maybe you'll explain if the website does still exist. Like, can we still see it? Or even, yes. are there screen the website- grabs or something? It, okay, good. Tell us. If you go to Blairwitch.com, it still exists and it still looks exactly like it did back in 1999. It's awesome. Mm. I think apparently they updated Blairwitch.com about on like the 10-year anniversary of the movie, but other than that, they've kept it pretty much as like an archival piece of history of, of what the website looked like when people went to look at it back when they thought it was a real thing. It's an incredible historical artefact for anyone who has no idea what the internet looked like in 1999. Yeah. <laughs> but this was peak. It's peak 1999. And you know what other website is still the same as what it was back then? What? The Space Jam website. you got to go have a look at that. <laughs> it's amazing. All right. I'll do that after this recording. <laughs> okay. So I will tell you how they did it. In um, 1993, a couple of film students called Daniel Mirick and Eduardo Sanchez, they realised that they often found true crime documentaries way more scary than act- like fictional horror films. And so they were like, what if we made a film that combined the best of both of those kinds of uh, film? So they got a very small ragtag team together of other film students that they'd gone to film school with. They're all working shitty day jobs. They're all like waiters and call centre operators. They wrote a 35-page script about something they called the Blair Witch and the script had no dialogue because they decided that the best way to make the film would it for, was for it to be all improvised. Like they wanted it to feel as real and as much like a documentary as possible. And they were like, it needs to just be improvised for that. Like, so for example, like it would just say in the script, you know, 
the actors realized they've lost the map and then the actors had to just film a scene. Like they had Mm -hmm. to improvise everything. They knew they'd had to develop a really rich mythology around the Blair Witch that they'd made up. So they spent a really long time, like like as long as they spent writing the script, they spent coming up with and making up an entire mythology and backstory around the history of the Blair Witch. Mm-hmm. They auditioned around 2,000 actors to find the final three who would appear in the film. Heather Donahue, Joshua Leonard and Mike Williams, those were their real names. They were actors. And they said they walked into the audition room and they were given no time to think. There was no like, hi, how are you? Thanks for coming. They just walked in and the director said, you've been in prison for eight years. This is your parole hearing. We're the parole board. Why should we release you? And they had to just (laughs) launch into it. it. And so... Uh. Because they wanted to make sure they had really good improvisational actors. So those three were chosen. Mm -hmm. Um, Before filming, the crew of the film went into the woods and they set up little drop points that um, had a little package with like food and water and script notes about what the actors would need to do like the next day. You know, little things like, you know, we need you to lose the map and don't tell the others, like stuff like that. Um, And the actors found those while they were filming by this brand new fancy technology at the time called GPS. (laughs) And at the time, a GPS system was this thing the size of a freaking like giant laptop. Mm -hmm. And they pre-programmed little points into it where the um, little care packages were for the actors. So the actors had this giant GPS computer and each day they would go to where the GPS computer told them to pick up their little care package with food and water and notes of what they had to do that day. The crew wanted the actors to seem genuinely terrified and one of the directors had gone to army survival training so he took a lot of what he'd learned in army survival training and just about like breaking people down to the point of like mental exhaustion and he put mm. the actors through the same stuff. So they gave them hardly any food. They didn't have a lot of water. They would make them walk for miles and miles and miles during the day just with no point to it except to exhaust, to exhaust them. them. And then mm. And then during the night, the crew were the ones running around the tents, snapping twigs, shaking the tents, like trying to keep them awake. So they were like hardly getting any sleep. They were petrified. They were basically living out a real life horror scenario and being told, film it while we petrify you. Like it was nuts. This must have been in breach of so many different union rules and guild laws. They specifically hired non-union actors. Of course. (laughs) And they said um, that apparently the director's motto was, it is our job to keep you safe. It's not our job to keep you comfortable. Oh. And, yeah. There was one Mm. night where the actors cracked it. They had um, a code word. Oh, what was the, like a a safety word? Um, Bulldozer. So if they said the word (laughs) bulldozer, they had to get pulled out. And there was Uh one night where it was torrential rain, the tent collapsed, they were soaked and they called in Bulldozer and the director was like, oh, fine. They, he said, we'll put, we'll let you sleep in a hotel for the night so you can stay dry, but you're not allowed to shower and you're not allowed, we're not going to give you any extra food or anything. So they got to be dry in this room for one night and then they got dropped back in the woods the next day. That was the one time the actors broke. 
Well, I was just, you might get to this explaining how much they were getting paid and was it actually worth it for them? Not a lot. In the end. <laughs> no, not really. Because <laughs> so, this is a big um, ask. Yes, they're basically being mentally tortured in the middle of the woods and stuff that was terrifying was actually terrifying. So, like, when Heather found the teeth and hair and bit of tongue, her reaction was real because she had no idea she was going to find that. Like, she just woke up in the morning and found it. The teeth were real. They'd been obtained from a dentist. The tongue was a bit of um, an animal's tongue from a butcher. And the hair was Josh's hair. So, Heather opened this... Thing of twigs and there was real human teeth, tongue and hair in there. Oh. So, like, she was scared. <laughs> it's nuts. Oh. And on the day, so on the day Josh disappeared, the crew took him out. Like, he knew he was going to disappear, but the other actors didn't because that had been in his little notes. And so the crew came and got him took him to a hotel room and he was like, yes, thank God I'm out of there. But before they let him go home, they spent a couple of hours recording him screaming. So they got all this audio of him screaming and then they sent him home and he's like, see you later. And the crew then took that audio to the woods and played it outside their tent for the next two nights to petrify them. Like they had no idea where Josh had gone and they just heard him screaming for two nights in a row. They weren't even in on it. Oh, no, I had no wow. idea. Because all the actors got separate notes that they weren't allowed to show each other. So they didn't know what was happening. Like, it is mentally nutso. <laughs> so. I feel like this is. Imp- well, yeah, it's, there's a reason. There's many reasons this could never be made again or work again. Because I think just safety, oh s laws now would not allow it. And also, yeah, it just. It, <laughs> it just, feels like it it's in breach of something that the UN would mandate, like human rights Probably. violations beyond just, you know, union laws or OH&S stuff. This is Probably. Torture. I mean, if I opened that bundle of sticks and found human teeth and a tongue in there, I'd be like, fucking bulldozer, get me out. I'm done, you freaks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. at that point, I would probably start thinking are these guys actually murderers and they've got me in here under the guise of making a movie, but actually they're just messing with me and I'm going to end up dead. Like you would, cause you're exhausted. You've been in the woods for a week. You're hungry. You'd start going nuts. Mm-hmm. So all the townspeople they interviewed at, in the start of the film about like the Blair Witch legend were mostly just people they knew or interesting people they did meet around town. And they were like, do you mm-hmm. want to, you know, being this thing. My favourite story is um, <laughs> this. There's a woman um, they interview called Mary Brown who's kind of like this eccentric old lady who lives in um, Burkittsville and she insists that she saw the Blair Witch once when she was younger. Um, I don't know if you remember, she's like one of the people from the start of the mm. film. She was actually played by a woman called Peggy Peggy was, um, when they were making the film and they needed to do it on a really low budget, like hardly anyone was getting paid. And so they tried to hire, like they tried to get interns to come because that's like, you know, free labour essentially. So they put up all these flyers at old film schools about interns and stuff, about interns. They got one response. And when they went to pick up this woman, Peggy, it was a 75-year-old woman who just really wanted to like 
do something cool and intern on a movie. So they had this (laughs) 75-year-old intern called Peggy and she was so funny that they got her to play the part of this woman called Mary Brown. So she ended up in the movie. (laughs) That's gold. (laughs) Yeah, I know. So they finished filming and um, all the actors are traumatised and will probably never recover and they just go home and that's it. They've done their bit. They get paid and off Mm. they go. The film takes about eight months to edit because there's a lot of footage and they sort of all think, oh, you know, maybe it'll get on TV, like maybe it'll get on some obscure horror cable channel. They're not expecting a huge amount from it, but then it gets accepted into Sundance, the Sundance Film Festival, which they're Mm. shocked by. Um, and they're pretty clever at Sundance. They make they print out a bunch of missing flyers, so missing Heather Donahue, Josh Leonard, Mike Williams, and hand them out at the festival. So people think that this is a movie about these three missing college students. There's a midnight screening and there is a bidding war, like production companies and distribution companies. So film festivals work by you make a film, you screen it, and then a distribution company with a lot of money is like, I will buy that movie and I will pay to advertise it and put it in cinemas. And so there's a bidding war. All these distribution companies Mm -hmm. want it. They eventually sell the film to a production company called Artisan who buys the rights to distribute the Blair Witch Project for a million dollars. They had spent $25,000 making the movie. And here's where things get clever. Artisan sees the potential for marketing this film. They're like, the reason it blew everyone's minds at Sundance, the reason it blew our minds is because everyone thought it was real. So Artisan Mm. hires a very fancy marketing firm to help them push that narrative that this is a real film with real footage about three real college students who went missing. And they say that in the end, the Blair Witch Project, it cost about $500,000 to make because $25,000 of it was on just making the film that the film students put together. And the rest of that $500,000 was pretty much spent on creating a massive marketing scheme around the movie. So that's when, part as part of that marketing scheme, that's when they made that half-hour documentary, The Curse of the Blair Witch. And that documentary was amazing, by the way. Like, it had an old press mm-hmm. conference with footage from the 40s showing Rustin Parr, the murderer, admitting to killing all those kids. Mm-hmm. Like, and it was all faked, but it looked <laughs> real. Like, it, mm-hmm. you felt like you were watching a true crime documentary. And that's when, you know, they wrote, that entire book called The Blair Witch, a dossier, which is the book I had and was convinced was real. That's when they made the website that looked like a real website dedicated to trying to find the missing Heather, Mike and Josh. Mm. Um, And the internet was pretty new. So if you search The Blair Witch or The Blair Witch Project, you pretty much only got sent to that website. So that's the only information everyone was reading. Um, And like I said, if you search the actors' names, it came up on IMDb that they were filmmakers who were missing, presumed dead, to the point where um, all three actors said their parents all got condolence cards from friends thinking their children had gone missing. (laughs) Like, people believed it. Um, And then the trailers were released and the trailer had that iconic... I'm so scared right now, scene. Mm. So before the film was even released, people were convinced 
it was true. And it was one of the most clicked on websites of all time at that point, um, which they used to their advantage. So they started posting full page ads in newspapers that just had Blairwitch.com, uh, 50 million hits and counting. And so then people got real FOMO about it because they were like, what? Like that was just unheard. Like, a website to get like 1,000 hits was mm. big back then. So it just it yeah. just was this huge sense of FOMO and excitement and everybody felt like they were part of something, part of this like phenomenon. This It was like a ghost story was finally real. Like that's what mm. it felt like. We were seeing that for the first time. So the film is released and seriously, given that they made it for $25,000, this is nuts, it went on to gross $248.6 million. Like, that is just, <laughs> I don't know the maths on that, but that's good. That's a good profit. In what time span? Is that just in like the first month or is that um, in up the, until oh, today? In the first, like that's up until today, but in the first like, mu- like few months, it had made like $100 million. Like it was just... Mm-hmm out of this world ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's off $25,000 to make the film and about another $500,000 in like marketing and distribution. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just couldn't happen today. Like, because the second something like this came out today, you would do one Google search and the whole thing would fall apart. Like people are way yeah. too savvy about the internet now. They're way too savvy about, you know, viral marketing now. I think it was just people wanted to believe and, like, it was the perfect storm of naivete and the internet being this new thing that we didn't understand yet and the genre of found footage films not really being a thing yet. I mean, people would... And I think on top of that, people were just really desperate to be a part of it. They wanted it to be true, like... There's this guy called Ben Rock who was the production designer, but he also wrote um, all of the mythology and the backstory about the Blair Witch and he wrote, like, that documentary and all that stuff. And he said he got into an argument with someone once who was like, yeah, the movie is fictional, but the legend that the Blair Witch that it's based on is real. And he was like, (laughs) I'm telling you it's not because I wrote it. (laughs) It is not real. And this person was like, excuse me, haven't you seen the footage of that murderer back in the 40s admitting that he killed all the kids? And he was like, yeah, we filmed that in a studio down the road. Like he just was like, I've created this thing that people don't even believe it's not real when I tell them that it's not. (gasps) Which actually I was thinking when I was writing this, like it's like the pendulum has swung and that's what's happening with fake news now and QAnon and stuff now. It's like kind of swung back. Well, I mean that like things are now so obviously untrue and people say, no, no, but I know it's real. I know it's real. It's like we went through this period of being so naive about the internet that we believed anything to becoming incredibly savvy to now the internet is being used against us again and people are back to being stupid. Yeah, I can completely see the parallel where you've got people that they want to believe something so they will just choose to believe it despite any evidence to the contrary, they will just choose. Yes. And the fact that a big part of the investment does seem to come from the fact that people go, oh, children are being abused in some way or have been abused in some way. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get on board with 
the solution because that means that I'm a good person. Um, and that then sort of narrows in their focus into deciding, well, this is the path that I have to stay on mm-hmm. to demonstrate that I am against cruelty to children in any way. Yeah. Well, this was, I mean, released in 1999, which was just at the end of that very destructive period of satanic panic across the US was, you know, Ah. the late 80s to mid 90s. So it was just at the right time, I think. But Mm. I and it also reminded me a lot that sense of being desperate to believe it was true um, because it was fun to be a part of something and it was fun to talk about it, like conspiracy theories and ghost stories and all that stuff. It's fun to talk about. And I don't know if you've watched um, season two of Pen15 yet. Have you watched it? Not yet, no. So there's an episode where the girls, because they're teenagers around this time, I think they're teenagers in the year 2000, there's an episode where they get obsessed with the movie The Craft and they get obsessed (laughs) with witchcraft, which every kid did back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, light as a feather, um, stiff as a board. Light as a feather, stiff as a board. Light as a feather, yes. stiff as a board. Light as feather, stiff as a board. Uh, Mr. We are the weirdos. <laughs> but there's a scene where, what's her name? Um, Anna? I think her name's Anna. I forget their names. The blonde one. Her parents are getting divorced and they won't stop fighting and they won't stop yelling at each other. She's really depressed. She's really uncomfortable at home. So Maya pulls her out of the house and they run away to like this wooded area and they're just hanging out, sitting there talking. And Maya can tell how upset Anna is. And so she looks at the ground and she goes, oh my God, oh my God, look, these, these twigs, they, they were not arranged like this before. Look, look, they're arranged so weird. And like Anna kind of looks at her like, I know this is stupid, but then they kind of both look at each other and it's the most genius scene because there's a flash between them in their eyes. Like, we know this isn't real, but your parents are fighting and everything is shit and let's just f-ing get on board with this nonsense right now because it's something fun to focus on. And so mm. then they both start looking at the sticks and they both start convincing themselves that there's witchcraft and that they're witches and that they have this special power and they get really into it and they know it's not true, but it's just something fun to focus on. And, like, mm-hmm. I get that. I think that's, that's why I got obsessed with it when I was in year eight. I mean, that was pretty much... At the pointy end, I mean, I was taken out of my mother's custody permanently less, I think, less than six months after the Blair Witch Project came out. So it was a pretty horrible time for me at home. Mm. And I think I got really obsessed with it because it was just something fun to be obsessed with. It's like a bit of a fantasy. And what I find so hilarious is that years later, because I remember being so confused about the Blair Witch Project for years because I was like, but I had that book and like that book was real. Like, and so then I was one of those people who once it came out that, you know, six months after the film came out, the actors were revealed to be actors. They were on the cover of Rolling Stone. Heather Donahue won the um, Razzie for Worst Actress at the Oscars. No <laughs> way. Well, at the day really? before the Oscars, yeah. Oh. Which I was surprised by because I thought that was a solid freaking performance. Yeah. Yeah. So the actors became quite famous and, you know, the filmmakers just became the rock stars of the filmmaking world. So everybody, you know, within six months knew it was fake. But I was like, but this book. And so I became one of those people who was like, well, look, it's the movie was fake, but the legend it's based on is real because I've got this book and the book is filled with all this information about all this stuff. 
And it was years later when I was like going through my stuff, like childhood boxes of stuff, and I found the book. And I swear to God, on the front page, Jacob, like you open the book, the front first page, there's a disclaimer that says, publisher's disclaimer, the following is a work of fiction. Any resemblance to real people or stories, living or dead, is totally coincidental. Like, you know those disclaimers? Yeah. <laughs> I would have seen that as a kid. Like, I think I was just desperate for it to be real. You needed escapism for very obvious, important reasons. Yeah. So I think that's got a lot to do with it. People wanted it to be true because it was Mm -hmm. funner if it was. Yeah. It is guaranteed a million times funner to watch Blair Witch Project if you go into it thinking it's real. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, it's, it's harmless. If you choose to believe that a work of fiction is true, but it's just within that one little protected bubble, mm. that little fictional world, that's, that's completely fine. Um, the issues mm. then come in when, if that were be, to be something that would influence the way that you were voting or to maybe, you know, get Which is you what it so is riled up that now. you take a gun somewhere and yes. ambush people. Um, that's a very, very different story. But back story. then it was just a silly horror movie. Mm. Today when people believe fake stuff, yes, you're right, it leads them to shoot up pizza parlours and mm-hmm. vote for people like Donald Trump. So, mm. But at the time it was just, we were such innocent idiots who didn't understand the internet, didn't understand viral marketing, just did just... Like I said, the perfect storm of naivete. Yes. Oh. Are you <laughs> feeling are nostalgic? I am. So much. <laughs> I know. It's so insufferable when millennials do get nostalgic for the late 90s and early 2000s. But I know. let's face it, it was the golden age and will always oh. be known as such. Early Christine Aguilera, oh. Genie in a Bottle, oh. Britney Spears. Light as a feather, stiff as a board. Light as a feather, stiff as a board. He's sorry, he's sorry, he's sorry. Remember that Dude, bit? Me and feet are dragging yes. across the floor. Oh, me and my friends went to, because we lived in the Blue Mountains, so there's a lot of very witchy type stores in Katoomba. And we mm. went to one of those witchy stores and we pulled all our money together and bought a very fancy looking silver dagger that had all those stones on it. So it looked like a witchcraft kind of dagger. And we literally did that thing where we cut, our hands and like put blood into a cup and drank it because we wanted to be like I know but I was such a wuss that I was too scared to do it with a dagger so I sat there with a safety pin like scraping at my finger going "Ah, ah," until the tiniest bit fell out into the cup Oh, dude. Okay, you took it to another level. We spent a lot of money on Uh, herbs and crystals and velvet, but we definitely never actually pierced our skin or consumed each other's bodily fluids. uh, If you weren't putting your blood into a cup and drinking it, you weren't committed to being part of the craft. I'll accept that, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, that's it. That was the Blair Witch Project. Um, The actors... Heather Donahue uh, acted in a couple more things, but now she owns a legal weed store and has written about distributing like marijuana recipes and stuff. Of the other two, I mixed them up, but one of them ended up a high school counsellor and the other one just works a regular job somewhere. And um, like you said, there were a couple of sequels that died in the arse. 
The filmmakers all went on to do stuff of varying success, but nothing was ever as big for any of them as the original Blair Witch film Mm. was. But it did, um, you know, spawn a lot of found footage films. So then we went on to have all the paranormal activities, stuff like Cloverfield. It really did revive the horror genre at a time when there hadn't been a lot of good um, horror movies. And it also just completely... um, revolutionised the way people thought about marketing and viral marketing and how we could use it. In fact, probably the people who were most successful out of this was the marketing firm they hired to come up with this strategy went on to become this huge, like, successful gazillion-dollar marketing firm that now, to this day, still comes up with cool campaigns for people on stuff like this. Wow. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It definitely sort of spawned its own special genre of cinema verite. I think that was the fancy Mm. word that people were bandering about at the time. Um, And not only that, but sort of reinvigorated the supernatural sort of film. So up until that point, anything horror was very much slasher related. It was an actual physical being with a knife. Um, And now it was something that was sort of a lot more ominous and faceless. And one of the things I'm curious so the the stick figures are very iconic Mm. to Blair Witch Mm. and I don't know if they'd existed previously but then they started to sort of appear in different pop culture moments as a sort of threatening symbol going forward in things like true detective and whatnot yeah so Um, did you read anything about that that was created by the production designer called Ben Rock, who I mentioned before. He mm. just looked at a whole bunch of stuff like, um, you know, the runic runes and like the old mm. kind of rune alphabet and and all. He looked in like Celtic traditions and he literally just came up with this stick figure thing, like, you know, as just part of like props. And they decided to use that as the image on the poster and it just became this iconic thing. And he was like, I got paid $300 a week to work on that movie for like four weeks and he created one of the most iconic sim- horror symbols of all time. Yeah, because it has been lent on by so many mm. producers and cinematographers since that point. Yeah. Um, He's actually <laughs> where I got a lot of information from. So like we give you just the gist, although that was probably a bit more than just the gist. But um, if you want to know more, I um, looked at... Um, this great series of blog posts by Ben Rock, who was the production designer and the guy who came up with all the mythology. Um, I'll put all the notes in um, the show notes, obviously, but he wrote eight uh, blog posts about the entire experience of making the film from start to finish um, on this website called Dread Central. So Mm -hmm. I highly recommend you read it because he literally was in it from the ground floor when they were like, wouldn't it be cool? And then right to the end. And then obviously I went to... the BlairWitch.com original <laughs> website. I read a bunch of, there's a bunch of really cool articles written by marketing experts who look at the film from the marketing side of things and how amazing that was. So I read a bunch of those. And also what gave me the idea to do this episode in the first place was that new podcast that I recommended a few weeks, or it's not a new podcast, new to me, that I recommended a few weeks ago called American Hysteria. Um, a girl who mm. goes through like things in the US that people have like gone nuts over and then she kind of 
um, explores the reasons for why that happened. It's such a good podcast. She did a mini-sode, I think it's about 10 minutes long, on the Blair Witch Project and how everyone was obsessed with it for this weird six months of time back in 1999. So when I listened to her do that, I was like, man, I really want to look into that more. So I highly recommend listening to her little mini-sode about it as well. But that's pretty much all the main stuff I looked at. Plus I rewatched the movie, obviously. Caleb wouldn't watch it with me because he doesn't like horror. Oh, Caleb's scared. a speedy cat. The sequels? Have you ever seen the sequels? I watched it by myself. No, I've never seen the sequels because they look like shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I've heard they are as well. So I don't... Yeah, it feels like they would ruin it. Yeah, and also by the time the sequels came out, it had lost the magic of the moment, which is that everyone mm. knew it was fake and I think also um the directors fell out with Artisan Entertainment the company that um bought the film because Artisan wanted to put gazillions of dollars behind making the sequels really fancy and schmick and and blockbustery and they were like that takes away from what makes it scary in the first place so the directors actually weren't and the writers weren't connected with the sequels at all Mm -hmm. um that was just a big movie company deciding they knew how to do it better and they took away everything that made the movies magical and scary and work so Mm. that's why they didn't work I guess Oh my goodness. My heart is still racing because you genuinely took me back to that, particularly the scene (laughs) where she unwraps that package and there are human Mm -hmm. teeth in there. I didn't know that they were actual human teeth to this day. Yeah, they got them Um, from a dentist. (laughs) But that, like everyone in the cinema's heart was pounding out of their chest at that moment. And then when the movie ended, like you said, everyone just sort of sat in this awkward, stunned silence. When he's standing against the wall so you know what's happening. Yes, like shaking. And um, I guess that's the reason why they have age limits. I'm sure this was one of the movies that my friends and I snuck into. We had a very sophisticated system of borrowing the library cards of people who were in grades older than us. Um, And that stood as our evidence that I must be Mm. 15 if I'm in year 11. (laughs) Check out my library card. Yeah, I'm pretty sure at Penrith Plaza they didn't give a shit, so we just went in. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for that. You're very welcome. I feel like I'm going to go listen to some Christine Aguilera and watch The Craft. Put some butterfly clips in my hair. Oh, oh, come on over, baby. And some glitter shadow on my eyes. I'm going to have a full (laughs) 1999 afternoon. All right. Love you. (laughs) Love you too. Bye. Okay, I have to let you know the original BlairWitch.com website was taken down a few months ago and we have no idea why, but some people on Reddit think there might be something going on in the background. So I guess we'll see. You can still access an archived version, so I'll pop the link for that in the show notes for anyone who hasn't yet had a peek at it or anyone who's just curious to know what the internet looked like in 1999. And also just a public service announcement 
from me to you. After we recorded the original episode, I did try to watch the movie for the first time since 1999 and I cannot recommend it. I had to turn it off after like 15 minutes, maybe 10, because it was ruining a precious memory from my childhood. The acting and the camera work and the makeup on Heather were so dreadful. I had to switch it off to preserve a treasured piece of my youth. So I wouldn't recommend watching it again if you enjoyed it back in the day. Just hold on to that memory you have. Now, let's talk about the next chapter in the Blair Witch Saga. As Rosie mentioned, the movie sequels were total flops. I've not seen them. Apparently they're dreadful. They made very little money and got appalling reviews, especially the first sequel called Blair Witch 2 Book of Shadows. That was one the studio rushed out as quickly as they could to try to capitalize on the success of the original straight away. And at that time, what the creators of the original wanted to do was tell the origin story of the Blair Witch with a proper high-budget period piece about her, which would have been so much better than what the studio actually delivered. And I hope everyone involved knows it's not too late for them to make that movie, that origin story, that prequel. We would love to see it whenever they're ready. But in the meantime, they're working on a new Blair Witch video game. And this won't be the first one. There is already a handful of Blair Witch games which have made loads more money than any of the sequels, so I can understand why they're choosing to focus on games at this stage. What makes this game different is that the studio is essentially crowdsourcing the plot of the game via a competition. So anyone, even you, if you get in before October 31st, anyone can submit an idea for the plot of the game using the prompt that's been provided by the studio as a starting point. You don't have to be a gamer. You don't have to be able to write code. You just have to have a good original story. And it's a really smart move that's got them a decent amount of publicity. It's exactly the sort of viral stunt that's very much in keeping with the legacy of Blair Witch style marketing. And the prompt is pretty good. I actually think it has legs to potentially become a movie one day in the future. Uh, The prompt is, horror tourists and fans congregate in Burkittsville, Maryland for a three-day Blair Witch-themed music festival. Seances, rituals, and spooky-themed scavenger hunts fill the once-frightening Black Hills Forest. As a horror streamer, you think you can brave just about everything, right? Your plan? Break the internet by taking on the Survive the Witch Challenge. The horrific twist? The festival's organisers have something wicked in store for the young influencers in attendance. Will you and your crew survive a night in the Black Hills Forest or end up live streaming your own deaths? Hashtag Blair Witch Fest. I really hope this is a massive success because I know I'll never play the game. So I'm crossing my bits in hope that the winning storyline is 
really good and the game is so successful that ultimately it leads to finally a decent movie sequel down the track and then maybe that leads to them finally creating that prequel that would have been so great. Time will tell. I'll pop the link in the show notes for that so you can check out the details if you do want to get involved. You better be quick though. Entries close on October 31st. And I'm going to wrap it up there for this week. Thank you all so, so much for listening as always and for sticking with us, especially over the last six weeks. I know it's not the same when it's not a new story each week and when we don't have Rosie. So thank you for staying interested and staying on board. Thank you for all your kind messages. We see them all and we really do appreciate them all. Have beautiful Halloween this weekend. Eat, drink, and be scary. Get in touch with us via Instagram. By all means, feel free to tag us in any fun Halloween pics that you post so that we can live vicariously through your Halloween parties or trick-or-treating at Just The Gist Podcast, at Jacob William Stanley, and at Rosie Waterland. And I'm going to go watch Hocus Pocus. Happy haunting. Listener.